service is from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, the verses 12 through 17. of him who has the sharp and double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in, day, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who has put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites into sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the overcomes, I will give some of the land. I will also give him a white stone, a new name written on him, known only to him who receives it and overcomes. After the sermon, we will respond by hearing from hymn 61, stanza 2. Activities. We like to eat and drink in the company of others. And so the social aspect of eating and drinking with friends and relatives is also very important. The most important part of any celebration, such as Christmas or Thanksgiving or an anniversary, is the meal together. We connect with each other, especially through the sharing of food and drink. This letter to the church at Pergamum has a lot to do with food and drink and with fellowship with the Lord and each other, and also with those who hand out the food and the drink, with the office bearers who give them instructions. So you see, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has a double-edged sword in his mouth, is concerned about what is happening in Pergamum. Some of the people of the church at Pergamum are eating the wrong kinds of food and seeking the wrong kinds of fellowship. They want the best of both worlds, the world of God and the world of Satan. But you cannot have it both ways. You cannot have a fellowship with God and at the same time fellowship with the world. It's either the one or the other. You cannot compromise your faith. And so the Lord Jesus Christ warns them against those who eat food in the wrong fellowship by eating food offered to idols. 
Jesus strong, and that he will fight against those who do that with the sword of his mouth. What then must they do? Well, he says they must eat the hidden manna from heaven. What exactly is hidden manna? And how does that apply today? That's what I want to preach to you about this morning. Demons are swallowed. Be satisfied only with the hidden manna from heaven. And then we will first look at the rejection of worldly food. And secondly, the compromise with worldly food. And then finally, the offer of heavenly food. Pergamum was the capital of Asia. When we think of Asia today, we think of the continent. However, Asia during the biblical times was actually a province of the Roman Empire. It was that part of the world where Turkey is now located. Pergamum was in the same province as Ephesus and Smyrna, where the two first two letters were written, the first two letters of Revelation. Pergamum, however, being the capital, was the most important city of that province. Pergamum was not located on the coast as the other two cities were, but was, and still is, what still exists today, and is known as Pergama, located 24 kilometers inland of the Aegean Sea. Pergamum is actually situated on a fairly high, rocky hill, and is surrounded by a wide expanse of fertile land all around. Pergamum was in the grip of the devil, serving many different gods. The most important god was Caesar himself. A very large temple was dedicated to him. During the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, that temple was extensively excavated by German archaeologists. Today you will find a copy of that temple in a museum in Germany. The temple was 100 feet square and stood 4 feet high. Quite an imposing structure. The city also boasted a temple dedicated to Athena, also known as Minerva, who was the god of war and protection. Furthermore, the city had a leading center dedicated to the god Asclepius, who was worshipped as the god of healing. Most of you know what the insignia looks like that is associated with the medical profession. It is an entwined serpent on a staff. Well, that insignia is associated with the god of healing, Asclepius. No doubt you also have heard the name Hippocrates. The Hippocratic Oath is named after him. He is considered the father of modern medicine. Well, Hippocrates was trained there in that city of Pergamum. Another god who was very prominent in the city of Pergamum was the god Dionysus. He was the god of vegetation. He presided over the fruit trees, the ivy, and the vine. He was represented by either a bull or a goat. With all the other gods, there was a lot of somber worship dealing with the spirits of the dead. With the god Dionysus, however, this was different. For the people believed that after Dionysus was killed because of a jealous rage of the head god, the main god Zeus, that 
subsequently he had been resurrected. And so with Dionysus, the celebration of life is especially prominent. There was therefore a lot of merriment associated with the worship of that god. As the god of the vine, Dionysus was thought to be able to pass his power on to his devotees through the intoxicating influence of the wine. The worshippers would drink and eat and dance while listening to wild music and engage in every form of ecstatic revelry. The more wine you drank, the bolder you became, and so they would be driven to all kinds of excesses. As part of their celebration and worship, they would reenact the mythical adventures by pantomime or pageant. The climax of a festival would occur when the people, their senses dulled by the alcohol and frenzied music, would tear into a live bull with their teeth, tear it to pieces, and devour its raw flesh. It was thought that in this way the participants would receive superhuman energy. In certain places it even would happen that a human being would take the place of the bull. The Lord Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, I know where Satan is, where Satan has his throne. Now you understand why the Lord Jesus says that to them. Pergamum is the center of paganism. The city, above all other cities, represents the worship of the devil. For Satan is the one who wants you to give full effect to your base passions. That is how you serve him. That is how the heathen people of Pergamum serve him. The Lord Jesus Christ, however, commends the Christians in that city for being true to his name. That's how he starts out his letter. For those Christians believe that those heathen gods do not exist and that you should not worship them. And they stated that there's only one God, the creator of heaven and earth, and him alone they acknowledged as the only God they should worship. Now to make such a claim in such a pagan city is not easy. For those who state that the other gods are not real gods, unworthy of worship, they put their very lives in danger, at risk. And indeed, that's also what happened to a certain person, Antipas. Nothing official is known about this man, except that he ruled this passage. According to tradition, however, this man was slowly roasted to death in a bronze kettle. He was put to death because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the lure, the enticement of this pagan god was really great. You can imagine nobody would want to suffer such a fate, and yet there was also a lot of things that was alluring about these kinds of activities and worship. And if you understand the world of the day, you understand why. Idolatry with all its practices was woven into the very fabric of social and economic life. Which brings us to the second point. Since idolatry was such an important part of the social life of the world of that day, 
it was very difficult for anyone not to participate. This was expected of you. If you refused to partake of the Eden feasts, then you would make a very strong statement, namely that you are withdrawing yourself from the whole social life of that time and not sharing in their values. For you see, the expectation of active participation in every aspect of societal life during those times was much greater than today. That was because all the various trades or guilds had various different kinds of gods attached to them. If you did not participate in the feasts and in the worship of the particular god associated with the trade, then you could lose your job. You did. And no longer be allowed to ply your trade. Another thing is you would have to lose your friends and you would lose your standing in society. That was one of the worst things. For then you would be looked down upon, children would become outcasts, you yourself would become a pariah, and you would be treated like a reject. Now then, these people who belonged to the church in Pergamum and who had been converted to Christianity, at one part had been fully part, at one time had been fully part of that society. That's where all their friends were. But when they became Christians, they had to break with their friends and with their neighbors. You can imagine, that's very hard to do. Your friends would not understand why you would do this. They would feel this as a personal rejection. But as Christians, they had no choice. Satan, however, uses the need for man's social contact with others as a way of keeping them from serving the Lord. He knew exactly how to lure those people back into his lair. So what did some of these people do? Well, some of those people who belonged to the church in Pergamon began to compromise their faith. They thought of a way that they could have the best of both worlds. They thought that they would be able to partake of the world with its idolatrous, with its idolatrous feasts as long as in their hearts they knew that they were not really serving God and that they were not really gods. And so once again they went along somewhat with their neighbors and with their fellow tradesmen and partook of the various pagan activities. They rationalized their actions by thinking that they were still serving the Lord God. For they did not actually believe in these gods of the world. They still believed in the God of the Scriptures. In that connection, the Lord mentions the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They were also mentioned in relation to the church at Ephesus. As you may remember, the Nicolaitans were a radical sect that taught that it was impossible to compromise with the pagan world. They argued for Christian freedom. In Christ, so they claimed, you are free to do whatever your heart desires. Faith is a matter of the heart. And it is through faith that you have fellowship with God. As long as you believe in him, you can do no wrong. The Lord Jesus tells the Pergamites that such compromise with the world is actually deadly. 
hashtag here in your mind stand on the pad that says further, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Now, it may appear that this is a different group of people. However, once you realize what Balaam taught, then you'll also see that those who hold that teaching, and the Nicolaitans, and also those, as we will see later, the Lord willing, when we deal with the followers of the woman Jezebel in the church at Thyatira, that all are in effect one and the same. They all do, they all believe the same thing. They all compromise with the world and with the religions of the world. They all partake in one way or the other of the world with its horrible practices. Let me remind you who Balaam was. Balaam was hired by the heathen Moabite king Balak to curse the people of Israel. Try as he might, the words would not come out of his mouth. The Lord would only allow words of blessings to come from Balaam's mouth. Balak became very frustrated. However, in spite of Balaam's failure, the false prophet suggested another plan to Balak, namely to destroy Israel by inviting the Israelites to their religious feasts. In this way, he hoped that they would compromise their own religion and in effect adopt theirs. He wanted to corrupt God's covenant. And once that would be accomplished, the Israelites would no longer be a threat. Balaam and Balak were very successful. The Israelites fell for it by and large. They partook of the heathen feast. They partook of their horrible, immoral, and decadent religious festivals. They cast aside the only true God, even though they deceived themselves into thinking that they did not. And now the Lord Jesus Christ reminds the church at Pergamon of that time in the history of God's people. By reminding them of Balaam, he reminds them of what happened to them, namely that God's people were put to the sword because of their horrible sins. God had them killed. For he does not tolerate compromise with the world. He does not want them to serve other gods. He is a jealous God. As we heard once again this morning when we read the Ten Commandments, there is only one God whom they must serve, and that is the Almighty God, the Creator of heaven and earth. Don't compromise, people. Of course, as is clear from the text, not all the people in Pergamon participated in those festivals. There were only some people who did so. And so why is this whole church now being criticized? Well, the church was criticized for tolerating those people in their midst who did those horrible things. The church no longer possessed the third mark of the true church namely to discipline those members who do not want to repent from their sins and who live wantonly in their sins. They allow those people who compromise with the world to remain part of the world. Brothers 
and sisters, pastors, parents, pastors, parents about to be ordained to a church that does not faithfully exercise discipline is in danger of becoming a false church. For such a church tolerates something that God will not tolerate. Oh sure, God is a compassionate God. He forgives us our sins. But he does not forgive us our sins if we do not want to repent from them, if we want to continue to live in them. He does not forgive them if we think that we can both serve God and mammon. And then he comes to you, as it says in the text, with the sword of his mouth. You know what that refers to, don't you? It refers to his sharp, double-edged sword. It refers to the almighty word of God. It refers to the fact that he will slay you with his mouth. word he creates life and he puts an end to life and God's powerful word is also given to his church it is given to the angel which is ministered at the church at Pergamum and it is also given to the office bearers in the church they are bearers of God's word they are the ones who have to distribute God's word they are the ones who have to protect its integrity They're the ones who have to use its power. Brothers and sisters, God's word is wonderful. Because of God's word, we can open the gates of heaven. But God's word also cuts the other way. It also shuts those gates as well. Therefore, they must use God's word as a powerful weapon as it is to condemn those who live in sin and if necessary announce to them that they are cut off from fellowship with God and his people if they do not repent when you are a Christian believe me brothers and sisters it includes you boys and girls and teenagers elderly middle aged all of us you're a Christian, when you are a believer, you have to make a conscious choice. You can't be a half-hearted Christian. You can't have it both ways. You cannot be part of the pagan world and be part of the Christian world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, the following What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Oh, sure, we live in the midst of a sinful world. But that does not mean that we are part of this world. Apostle Paul also says to the Corinthians in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, where he writes, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you have to leave this world. 
Indeed, we have to make our bread in this world. We have to do business with all kinds of people who come from various kinds of backgrounds and who practice all kinds of religions. The Lord God does not say that we have to disassociate ourselves from them. However, as soon as we partake of the evil practices of the people of the world, that's when we are going wrong. As soon as we seek our well-being from these people of the world and compromise our faith in the process, then we deny our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that danger is just as great now as it was then. ask ourselves how we participate in the world of today. For example, also today, you and I, we can partake of the world by compromising our faith through our business practices. There are many ways in which you can compromise your Christian ethics in order to retain or get your job. Think about it. What are the kinds of things that your business associates expect from you? which are unethical. In this day and age, it is also possible to invite the world and Satan right into your living room. You can invite him right through the screen of your television and the screen of your computer, the radio and the TVs and the books and the magazines and the smartphones. You can take of the things of the world by delighting immoral practices. You may think to yourself, well, as far as that goes, I'm doing pretty good. I keep myself pretty much clean. But then think again. For we are all guilty in one way or the other. It is impossible not to take over some of the evil practices of the world. For do not forget, brothers and sisters, that the world and his Satan, he wants to capture your heart, my heart. And mind and soul. He is out every day to get you. For instance, by nature we want to hang on to our earthly goods. We don't like to have to let go of our earthly comforts. We want to hang on to our friends, even when they are the wrong kinds of friends. We don't want to rebuke them, for that means that we may lose their friendship. Say that we do not partake of the sexual immorality of the world, but how often are our own minds not impure? And what are the kinds of things you do in secret? Now, these questions may leave you somewhat depressed. You may wonder, do I stand condemned? For we fall into sin all the time. But then please remember what the difference between a person of the world and a believer is. A believer does not want to live in his sin. A Christian constantly fights against sin. And he constantly allows the Holy Spirit to burn away the impurities of his heart. He realizes what a struggle it is to lead a holy life. And when we realize that, we're also humble. Constantly ask for the 
forgiveness of sins and you constantly ask the Lord God to give you strength not to sin, not to compromise with the world. And when you do that, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, then the Lord God will also bless you. What are those blessings? First of all, the great blessing of salvation. We have been delivered from our sins through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no greater blessing than that. What else? Well, the fact that our bread, our sustenance, our very life are in the hands of the Lord. You do not have to compromise your faith in order to receive these things from Him. No, the Lord God promises that He will look after you. He will sustain our lives here on earth. And above that, He gives you eternal life. Our daily bread, our physical bread is only a means to an end. Our daily bread is necessary so that we can eat lives of thankfulness to God. So that we can glorify Him. Those people in Pergamum who compromised their faith did not put their trust in God. They didn't eat lives of thankfulness in the way that they should. They did not think about those blessings from the Lord. Even though their daily bread, like everybody else's, comes from heaven. Lord God offers us both physical food and heavenly food. That brings us to the third point. Once again, at the end of this letter to the church in Pergamum, the Holy Spirit says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But then he says something unique to this church, namely that he will give him who overcomes a white stone with a new name on it. Well, all commentators agree as to ex what that means exactly. The most likely explanation is, however, that that white stone is that on that white stone is inscribed the name of Christ. For when the Scriptures speak of a new name, it always refers to Christ or to God Himself, and that name is written on the foreheads of the believers. That is clear from Revelation 3, verse 12, 14, verse 1, and 22, verse 4. And it is a white stone because it refers to purity. Only the believer receives Christ and his holiness, his purity. And then the Spirit says something else which is unique to the church in Pergamum. He says to him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna. What does that mean? Well, we all know what manna is. It was the fruit that fell from heaven every day except during the seventh day, when the Israelites were in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. They could depend on it. God never failed them. The man is spoken about in this context is the spiritual food that God gives to all believers. In John 6, verse 33 and 38, the Lord Jesus Christ himself refers to himself as the bread from heaven. The end of the book of Revelation, that bread is referred to once again in connection with the New Jerusalem. We read in chapter 22, verse 2, that there is a river in that New Jerusalem, and that on each side of the river stood the tree of life, which bore twelve crowns of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. In the New Jerusalem, no one will ever go hungry, for God will always satisfy his people with good food and everlasting food. That's the image that God wants us to have. Well, brothers and sisters, we may also taste of that everlasting food. 
but only those priests of it who trust in the Lord God to provide for them today and every day while they still live their life on earth. They are not anxious about their livelihood and about the bread that they eat. They trust that if they are daily faithful in their tasks, then a God will also provide for them. And it is for that reason that that manna is called hidden manna. For you see, it is hidden to unbelievers. It is hidden to those who do not put their trust in God. It is hidden to those who anxiously gather their crops as if their lives depended on it. All they can think about is the money that they can make. They have little or no regard for the manna in heaven. An unbeliever does not realize that the eternal bread is there for them, for the taking. It's a free gift. At the end of the book of Revelation, it says in chapter 22, verse 17, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. God's refreshing waters are free. And so is his eternal bread. And so that bread is not hidden to you who believe. For through faith you know that God is the one who can feed you both now and in the life to come. And that is why you and I are so blessed. God has opened our eyes to the reality of his power and presence. He feeds us. We have communion and fellowship with him. And we have it now. that out to us through the office of intercession. He gives them that manna to hand out to the people. It's a wonderful task that he has given to me as a minister. And it is a wonderful task that he has given to the elders and to the deacons. The office there is to promote wholesome fellowship with the Lord their God and with each other and they come to you with that hidden manna. That, brothers and sisters, is what feeds us, sustains us, and satisfies us. It is the hidden manna from heaven. When you believe in the manna from heaven, and you know and trust that God provides for you always, both physically and spiritually, into eternity.